Um, we have begun a, uh, a new sermon series um, called The Upside Down Kingdom. And in it, we have begun looking at the last part of Matthew's gospel, beginning in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus, for the first time, told his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. Now, this catches them off guard. This is not what they're expecting when they're thinking about the kingdom Jesus is ushering in. So this is something that not only catches them off guard, they're actually upset about it. But they discover that for them to be a part of the kingdom, that they themselves have to change, that they have to be turned upside down so that they can be right side up with the upside down kingdom. And so we continue our study today by looking at Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus is going to speak about relationships that these disciples are having with one another. And uh, he speaks into it, saying that it needs to look different than what you may even be expecting, how you then relate with one another. So I'm going to invite my friend Logan uh, to come up, and he's going to read, uh, beginning with Matthew 18, I think verses 1 through 14 is what you got. Um, And so he's going to read that for us before we dive in and study today. Good morning. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest king, uh, kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will, t- you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name uh, welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavenly millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life uh, with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these ones shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. It is good to be here with you this morning to be studying God's word together. July... 11th. That is the date that we have been given uh, for the birth of our child. And so we are pumped about that, right? Yeah. That's right. 7-Eleven, free Slurpee day. Come on. Come on. Free Slurpees 
for life, right? If that happens on, on that day. We've been thinking a lot about what it means to, to welcome a child into our world. It has got our attention. We are thinking about this baby a lot. And um, we, we realize that we need to prepare for it. And I, I am coming up with a list of things that we need. And my wife is also coming up with a list. Admittedly, hers is much longer uh, than mine. Um, I'm a little bit of a minimalist, and um, when I think about adding a baby to our New York City apartment, it, it makes me a little bit unsettled, um, thinking about all the stuff that we need to get, right? Um, now I get it. There are some necessities that we're going to have to adapt and change into. We, we need a baby crib, right? That's one, we have to find room for a baby crib. That's one thing that, that we need for sure. Um, probably need a few toys, I would think. I don't know how we're going to tell the difference between Dorothy, our dog, and the baby toys, but we'll figure it out. Um, it's going to drive me crazy, all these toys that are out. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, outfits, right? They need, they need clothes, I would, I would think. I'm thinking two outfits, one to wash, one to wear, right? <laughs> I know, pray for me. This is a tough journey that I'm on. Maybe pray for my wife in, in putting up with me in, in all of this, but our attention has been drawn to the idea of this child, this baby that is going to enter into our life. As we come to Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus bring in front of the disciples a child. He wants their attention on this kid, thinking about this child. And it's one of those moments that it causes us to look in and see what is Jesus doing? The disciples have just asked this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're curious. They want to know. This is a question about status. Who's going to be the greatest, like the one in control, the one that is powerful, the one in charge? They, they want to know. As you've been journeying with us, you know, just last week in Matthew 17, we saw Jesus invite Peter, James, and John to a high mountain where he was transfigured in front of them. He was revealing his glory, all of his glory, to these three privileged disciples. And in that moment, Moses and Elijah showed up. It was a holy moment that they had up on this mountain. And then as they came down from the mountain to be with the rest of the disciples, Jesus said to them, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. Now, it's probably that moment and maybe some others that has led into this question. The disciples are wondering, why Peter, James, and John? Why did they get this special moment? Maybe it's Peter, James, and John who asked this question because they can't talk about what they just experienced. So maybe they want to get the ball rolling a little bit about how great it was for them to be a part of this thing, right? And so the disciples come. We don't know who asked the question. We don't know who it's coming from. But they do have this question that is brewing in their mind about who is the greatest in this kingdom that you are ushering in, Jesus? What is our status going to be with one another? It's in that moment that Jesus brings in a child, and he uses it as an illustration. A literal child is brought in front of them. Read this with me, Matthew 18, beginning of verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to him and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In verse 2, he called a child and had him stand among them. And truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, 
Whoever humbles himself like this child, this one, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name, he welcomes me. Uh, when I read this, the first thing that comes to my mind is, who is this kid, <laughs> right? He just shows up out of nowhere. This child is brought before the disciples. Like, he's not named. We don't know, like, who his parents are. We don't know if he's been on the journey with them. Remember, they, they are going from Galilee now towards Jerusalem on this journey. And somewhere along the way, Jesus brings in this kid. <laughs> and he says, be like children to these disciples. This is an unnamed kid. We know nothing about this child. In this moment, as they ask, who is the greatest in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, they could have, he could have brought Peter for an illustration. He's used Peter before as, as an illustration, right? He could have brought James and John, the brothers, in front of them. But no, he brings this child that we know nothing about. Really to teach them what? About humility. He wants them to understand humility. This is a little bit of an awkward, arrogant question, isn't it? Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus had just started his kingdom movement. It's going. It's, he's about to usher it in. He's about to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross and to die. And in the midst of all of that, the, the disciples have the audacity to ask this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has also just launched a new church a new movement that is taking place right here with one community church. Has anybody thought about this question yet? <laughs> Who is the greatest in one community church? Who is greatest in OCC? It's a little bit obnoxious to think that way, isn't it? A little bit awkward, a little bit arrogant to think that way. Now, my answer to that might be different than yours. I would think about the woman carrying my child right now as being the greatest one in the church, but you might have a different answer. But here in this moment, what Jesus is wanting us to understand and wanting the disciples to understand is that this is not a kingdom about you being in charge or me being in charge, but it's about a status of humility that he wants us to take. This is not just about a, 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 a mental attribute or characteristic of humility. This is about status. He's asking the disciples to become like children, to lower themselves, to become weak. Now, I haven't read too many books just yet about babies or children. I need to. I need to get into that. <laughs> but I have picked up on the fact that Babies need food, and they need a lot of it. I have picked up that, that bit. I've also learned that the babies, they poop, and <laughs> they do a lot of it. I've picked up that, that much so far. And I've also understood that they need help doing all of that, the necessities of life. They can't just do that by themselves. They need help being fed. They need help changing their diaper. Maybe to a certain extent, maybe our baby will learn how to do, change its own diaper. I don't, I don't know. But, but anyways, um, I know that they need help. They are needy people, needy humans as babies, as children. They are dependent. They are weak. And this is what Jesus is asking of his disciples as they relate with one another in this community of the kingdom, that they would become weak, that they would become needy, that they would become dependent upon one another. 
Now, that is very upside-down thinking. That is very countercultural to even what we would think as we think about maturity and growing up, right? I mean, we're kind of taught like a good marker of maturity is independence, being able to stand on your own two feet, maybe get in your own place, maybe get in your own job, right? Like, that's what we think about, but Jesus is asking the disciples to enter into a community a people where they were going to need one another, where they would be dependent upon one another. What happens in church culture a lot of times is we think about convenience. Well, I want to be a part of this as long as it's a blessing to my life, as long as it's convenient for me, all right? I mean, when it fits in, I'll fit it in. Kind of one of those things, right? I thought about this even, even today as we were thinking about Man, we just, we just had a nor'easter and having a church service, right? What in the world? Is it convenient for us to get there? And it's not. It is not. Like, I, I already fell once today when walking the dog this morning, right? Like, it wasn't convenient for anybody to show up today. Let's just say that. Unless maybe you lived around the block, maybe. But this isn't about convenience. What Jesus is asking us to be a part of, what he's asking the disciples to be a part of, is something it is necessary that it's something that they depend upon one another, that they need one another. (laughs) They live a life where they they need each other. Now, here's the thing. I recognize that I think most of you are (laughs) adult-ish, right? I think most of you have, like, learned some skill in your life. Most of you have probably gotten to a place where you are somewhat independent, right? And you don't really need much from maybe me or others sitting around you. I get that. The disciples probably were in the same place. Didn't necessarily need each other. And so what is Jesus addressing here? He's wanting them to put themselves in a position where they do need each other. The word that he uses here when he speaks to them, he says, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become. Unless you turn. It's not just about becoming like children. You literally have to turn and become. This is about conversion. You have to live a different life where you are orienting that life around each other, putting yourself in a position where you need each other and doing that willingly. That's what Jesus is asking of the disciples. This is about jockeying for status in the kingdom. This is about becoming like a child, and you have to turn and become. My prayer for us is that we would be a community that needs each other. That it's not just about convenience. But I know for that to happen, it has to be a decision that you make. And a decision that that I make. I have to put myself in a place where I need you and you need me and we need each other. That's what Jesus is asking for. But as I think about that, Jesus does bring up the fact in this text that there are some difficulties in doing this very thing. You see, when we step into a place of need, we step into a place of vulnerability, don't we? 
If I put myself in a position where I need you, now I am vulnerable to you, right? And if you put yourself in a position where you need me, now you are vulnerable to me. Then we step into that place of vulnerability. And in that place of vulnerability, there can be damage done. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He continues the metaphor. In verse 6, he said, or verse 5, he said, or 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones... This is not just about children. He's not talking about children's ministry per se. He's saying those of us who have made ourselves weak, those of us who have become children, if any of these little ones believe in me fall away, it would have been better for him if a heavy millstone were tied around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses by whom the offense comes. Uh, woe to that person by whom the offense comes. In verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the internal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Oh my goodness. (laughs) We're talking about cutting off Hands and feet, gouging out eyes, drowning, hell. Oh, man, there's some text that you just walk into and you're like, this is beautiful. Can't wait to unpack this. And then there's texts like this where you just kind of want to run. <laughs> what in the world, right? I don't know if anybody envies me in this moment to unpack this part. But if you do, maybe you can come up and help a little bit. But Jesus understands that there is some danger involved in what he's asking the disciples to do. And it's serious. I don't think that Jesus is literally saying that we need to tie like bricks around our neck and throw ourselves into the Hudson River if we offend or hurt one another. That's what he's getting at. This is hyperbole, right? He's, he's exaggerating because of the seriousness of the moment that he's asking his disciples to step into. He's asking them to become weak, to become vulnerable, to put them in a place where they could be hurt. And he recognizes the seriousness of that ask and addresses it. And I just want to say, like, there is danger here, that if we are stepping into a place where we are committed to one another, There is a danger here that we need to recognize and we need to address ourselves. We have to care well for each other. It matters. And when things happen where we cause each other pain or we cause each other to struggle or maybe even dare say cause another one to fall away, to be apart from the rest, we have to address it. It's important. There may be times where we have to pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry. It's a serious issue. There may be times where we have to seek forgiveness. And there may be those moments where the the pain that has been caused is so severe that there has to be consequences. Like, we have to be willing to protect that which God is calling us into. If we don't take it serious, then what he's calling us to will never happen. We have to create a safe space where we can be vulnerable, where we can be weak around each other so that we are trusting in what God is doing, that he is in our midst working. 
And we have to take those things serious. But then he goes on to say something very sobering, doesn't he? Not only does he talk about the seriousness of what could happen, he then goes on to say that offenses are inevitable. They're inevitable. He's talking about the world, the human experience, and he's talking about brokenness, right? We are broken people, and as we come together into this place of vulnerability, where we are becoming weak, where we are needing each other, it is a serious thing, and understand that even though we try our best, offenses are still going to happen. And Billy Graham, great evangelist, said that if you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'd spoil it. <laughs> if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you would spoil it. Right? Why? Why? Because you're bringing in brokenness. None of us are perfect, right? And when we come together into this vulnerable space, it is going to be a messy space as well because we are bringing in our brokenness, our hurts, our hang-ups, all of those things that we struggle with. And so offenses then, they are inevitable. They're going to happen. I was on a call this past week with, <clears throat> with Sam Rayner from, he's the president of Church Answers. And uh, he was talking to me and a few other pastors about types of things that are happening now that we're coming out of the pandemic, if we're, if we're coming out of it what, what it, what it looks like for us and as church people. And he talked about a great reshuffling that is happening. <clears throat> that people, for whatever reason, in their, in their former church, they did not like something, they had a bad experience or whatever it might be, and now the pandemic itself has kind of hit a reset button, and so people can look for something better. That's what he talked about. And he also went on to say that it's, <laughs> it can be advantageous for a brand new church plant in that. Well, I want to say that um, something that may not be helpful for one community church, but hopefully it will, this is not a perfect church. And I don't think we ever will be a perfect church. And I also will say that, unfortunately, along the way, somebody, or maybe some people, are going to do something in this church that you do not like. It's going to happen. Offenses are inevitable. We're broken people. Along the way, somebody or some people in this church may even do something that causes you pain. It's unfortunate. It's serious. In no way, just by saying it's inevitable, inevitable, are we saying that it's not important, it's not serious. No, it still is. It still needs to be addressed. But it's more than likely going to happen because Jesus says it's inevitable to happen. So what do we do? How do we enter into that space? How do we come to that space of saying, I need you and you need me, of making ourselves vulnerable, knowing that it's more than likely that we are going to get hurt? How do we enter into that space? Well, Jesus suggested that we cut off hands and feet and, um, so that we aren't thrown into hell, right? Again, he's speaking in hyperbole, right? There's this exaggeration 
that is taking place because of the seriousness of the issue itself. But I think what Jesus continues to point us towards is the gospel. That Jesus himself is what holds us together, even in the midst of difficulty. Keep reading with me. Verse 10. It says, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. The metaphor continues of being little one, of being a child. So we know that this is connected. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven... Their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Have you ever wondered where we get the idea of guardian angels? <laughs> That's from texts like these, right? I don't know if it's a great doctrine, though. It's not like it's spelled out that there's an angel walking around with you, because here you see that there's an angel where? In heaven, <laughs> before the face of the Father. And who is the angel there for? For those that have become weak. For those that have become little ones, for those that have become like children, that there is literally an angel before the Father advocating for you. It leads into the parable then that Jesus is about to tell, because not only is there an angel that is for us, but the Father himself is for us. Read this with me. What do you think in verse 12? If someone has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over the sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, when we were looking at Matthew chapter uh, 13, uh, we were looking at parables, and we talked about in that series about how parables really are secrets to the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells these parables, these stories, so that we would know them. And so without the parable, there are secrets that we would not know. And here we see this parable given by Jesus because he wants us to know something very particular about the kingdom of God. That there is a father that chases after us when we have been hurt, when we have gone astray, when we have stumbled, when we have fallen because of what someone else has done to us. That's the, what this text is talking about. That's how it all fits together. That there's a father that does that, that does that for us. You may know this parable because it's also in Luke chapter 15. But the context is a little different. In Luke chapter 15, it's about evangelism, going after the, the sheep that does not know Jesus. Here the context is about pastoral care. The sheep that has fallen away, that has gone astray, because someone in the 99 has hurt them. That's the context that this parable is placed in. And what happens in that moment? The Father himself chases after that sheep that has gone astray. 
I think there's some application for us for sure that we would be pastoral in our care for one another, that we would go out of our way for those people that have been hurt and damaged, maybe by something that we or the church has done, and we would go after them to restore them and rejoice when they are brought back. But as much work as we can do, know that our hope is actually in the gospel, that it is our Father who has sent us Jesus to come after us when we have been hurt and wounded. It is Christ himself that chases us down and brings us back home and rejoices when we are restored. It is the gospel then that holds this broken mess together so that we can depend upon one another and what he is doing in our lives. It is Jesus himself that steps into our place of brokenness. Isaiah 53 um, is a passage that speaks to this, verses 4 through 6. It says, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And what does this line say? And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's why Jerusalem was the destination. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to die. Because on the cross, we are restored to our God in a relationship with him. By his wounds, we are healed. But not only that, through the cross that Jesus is going to in Jerusalem, we are restored in relationship to one another. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus literally steps into our pain. He steps into those places where we have been damaged. He steps into those places where we have experienced brokenness, and he is broken for it, so that we can be made whole in him. I've said this before in the series, and I will continue to say it again. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to die so that you and I can be made whole with our God and with each other. Our hope is in the gospel, in Jesus and his work and what he is doing and has done for us. And the call for you and for me is to go to Jerusalem and be there at the cross with him because it's in that place that we are made whole, where we are restored, where we have hope. So the response for you and, and for me is the command that Jesus gave to the disciples to turn and to become like children. When we are weak, he is our strength.
I want to invite the band to come and to begin playing. And I love the fact that um, we sing that little nursery song that we knew as children, maybe if you grew up in church. The first song that I ever learned. And Jesus loves me. No. Before the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he is strong. He is strong. I just want to say to maybe that person here that in any way that you've ever been hurt by anyone in the church, I, I can't personally apologize necessarily on their behalf. But I do know someone that can be strong in your weakness. It is Jesus who has come. As we have become like little children, it is Jesus who has come to be our strength in the middle of that weakness. He has come after us. Why? Because Jesus loves us. He loves us. I know this because we just read it. The Bible speaks of it. Jesus loves you. He loves me. He loves us. And I want to invite you today to turn and to become like children. Entering into that space of humbleness, of weakness, because it's there that you will find the strength of the Savior. It's there, hopefully, where you will find community with each other, depending upon one another. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work. We put our hope in the gospel today. I pray especially for that one that may be in the room that is processing the gospel for the first time. Father, would you speak to them about what it means for them to turn towards you? To turn away from, from sin and, and, and life lived the way that they've wanted to live it and to turn towards your life, towards your kingdom, and to be changed by you. Father, for those that may be hurting in the room, broken, God, I pray that you would um, move close to them today, that your spirit would move in close. Give to them what the restoration of the cross looks like. And Father, I pray that we'd be a church that we would care for each other well. And when wrong has been done, we will seek forgiveness, that we will talk about it, that we won't sweep it under the rug, that we will make, uh, make it a serious point to be reconciled to each other. Father, what you're trying to do matters. The community that you're building matters. And I pray that this will be more than just convenience. This will be a place that we have committed to, that we need, that we need each other community found in you as one. Thank you for Jesus. We lift up his name as we respond in song today. Amen.